0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Madison Pierce and I talk through the incarnation and the hypostatic union. We try to work through some interpretive issues and some theological issues related to Christ's obedience, his submission, his weaknesses and frailties, some of the biblical texts that talk about this, in particular, the doctrine of hypostatic union, uh, as we see it in different passages of scripture. We will focus a lot on the book of hebrews which madison is well acquainted with and we just kind of talk out loud together about these different issues maybe where we might disagree where one of us might emphasize the divinity or the humanity over another maybe what does it mean to be human as christ being human and then and then what does that mean for us as humans who are trying to be like him to follow him and what are the distinctions between his humanity and ours if any so i hope you'll enjoy my conversation with madison as always We're brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out more about their latest textbooks and monographs. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English translation. And now, my conversation with Madison Pierce. But first, no big deal. Pierce is back. We said we were going to do this 10 to 12 times a year, but because of your uh, busy schedule, being a budding, um, famous New Testament scholar, we've had a hard time getting together. So I'm glad we finally were able to make something work.
1: I feel like it's actually because you write me with like one day's notice. You're like, I'm so busy that I just happen to find, you know, twenty minutes in my busy schedule. Can you please drop everything you have going on? And do it. And I'm like, Brian, I'm saving the world and taking care of my family. I can't possibly come and speak to you tomorrow.
0: That's true. Last time I tried that, you were on vacation and then I tried again and you said, No, I told you I'm still on vacation. <laughs> so that might that may or may not clear. be fair. Well, let's just say this. There's truth in both. There's truth that you're a budding, uh, amazing New Testament scholar who's uh, getting too busy. And it's true that I uh, lack the uh, scheduling skills to give you enough time to make up for the fact that you were that type of scholar. Is that fair?
1: Well, thank you, Brandon. That's okay. really sweet. I, but I always have time for Church Creamer.
0: Always have time for Church not Creamer. Not
1: maybe tomorrow. So, you know.
0: <laughs> Well, I'll give you 20 minutes notice tomorrow and see if we can do another one. <laughs> All right. Well, we've done, uh, as one reviewer on Apple Podcasts said, we've done too much gratuitous small talk, small talk here at the beginning. Uh, so I wouldn't <laughs> want to go too far. Um, not that I care about what people say about me, Madison, cause I don't no, of course not. at all. No, no, um, no, no. Now we have shared before our course evaluations. I had a course evaluation last semester where someone said, uh, this class would be better if you lectured like such and such one of my colleagues. So, um, you know, it was, it was like a very positive. And then that one person said that, and then I was like, well, that person's been teaching longer than I've been alive. So I, I'm not sure what you want from me. So
1: I literally had a, a course evaluation one time that said I needed to get a new personality. <laughs> and I, you know, there's a lot that I need to learn, but that wouldn't that would that would hurt.
0: Was there was there any follow-up like uh and maybe this is the type of personality you should have or just just No,
1: I have no idea what exactly, like you smile too much or (laughs) you make too many really terrible, like dad slash mom jokes or like you think you're funny, but, or it could have been something that's actually not true. Like I do think I'm kind of funny and I do make too many (laughs) dad slash mom jokes, but some of the other stuff, I don't know. So yeah, well that's just what (laughs) comes with the territory.
0: So I uh, actually told one of my students, uh, she was the perfect example because I, I'm just, I'm barely different from real life in class. I'm like slightly more serious in class, uh, but not that much. And so my classes, sometimes I'll have a class where you're like, they're on board day one, they're already laughing. They're with me. And then like, we're going to have a good time. Uh, I have one class this semester that's taken time to get there. And I've seen it all play mm-hmm. out, particularly in one person's face. And I told her this after class the other day, she started out with like, they're all wearing masks, you know, so you only get the eyes. And she started out like squinting at me. Like, did he just, what is he talking about? Like, why did he, <laughs> And then it turned into, she started laughing. I could tell she was smiling and or laughing. And then now, uh, now that we're about halfway or so through the semester, now it's, um, she just shakes her head at me like I'm her dad who's embarrassing her in public. So I really appreciated (laughs) watching that trajectory of our, um, of our informal uh, professor student relationship as I've just seen her face. And I asked her if that was fair. And she said, yeah, pretty much. So
1: (laughs) I love it. So that's just my personality.
0: I can't be, I can't not be me. So
1: totally. Yeah. Yeah. You got, you got to be you. We actually um, accidentally taught my daughter the phrase, I'm a peacock. You got to let me fly. Oh no. Um, and she's been saying that a lot. So that reminds me of this.
0: <laughs> well, let's, let's, uh, let's fly. How about it? Um, all right. We're going to start today. So we're, we're trying to be slightly more organized than we were before. Um, whether or not that's actually going to work itself out is another question, but we did at least talk about one thing we want to talk about before. We started, um, and the whole conversation that I want to have today primarily is about how I tried to tweet something, and here's the problem, and this is what my colleague, uh, Ched Spellman, reminds me often, that there's no way really to tweet anything on Twitter that's not just stupid. If you try to be serious at all, somebody's not going to like it, and so I tried to say that in Hebrews 9... You see an example of inseparable operations because you see the eternal spirit who uh, Christ, you know, uh, offers himself without blemish to God through the eternal spirit. And of course, uh, not of course, but I am aware that that is a contested uh, passage and idea in the book of Hebrews, particularly is this a heavenly offering or is this related to the crucifixion? Nonetheless, I shot my shot and said, you know, either way, I think that you can make the same argument there, right? And that I don't want to disconnect the crucifixion from the heavenly offering from each other too much. So in that sense, I said, hey, I think you can probably do both. Uh, And anyway, I say that and um, I get a reply on Twitter and it's from my dear friend, Madison Pierce, that just says, and I quote, Hebrew uh no sorry that's not it where is it Oh, no, I just had it
1: you're mixing these up there's two different things like so on that occasion oh, yeah, you're right,
0: you're right. yeah you, 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 you were told like, me twice Madison, about this. come to
1: my defense no
0: you <laughs> that's didn't right. even
1: give me an option on this one you're right. like that's Madison right. insert yourself into this conversation back me up y'all and I was yeah, like that's I don't true. know Brandon did I but do on this one? one
0: this is the one that I invited you into that's correct yeah yeah, yeah. and then you just basically Hebrews uh Backslapped me, but you—you kind of back. You, you kinda, uh, You're the one me. that
1: brought up Hebrews this time. <laughs> so
0: anyway, you tried to be nice, and uh you brought up Hebrews. The second time was I wasn't even bringing up Hebrews, and you came after me and brought up Hebrews. You're right. What? Give the context for the other one because I—I I mentioned the wrong one. You're right.
1: This I happens so the, often. I
0: get them all confused.
1: The other one was it just—I mean you grossly oversimplifying something. And I was like, Oh, well, maybe we should add some nuance. I think that's how it went. I I don't know if we need any more detail than that.
0: Yeah. Who needs more detail? Like just as long as it makes you look good. Right. That's what we really care about here. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm. I said
0: something about how, um, Christ didn't, uh, put on flesh to become like us. Uh, he put on flesh so that we might become like him, which was, uh, admittedly a gross generalization. And was admittedly a uh, response to a definite subtweet response to not other tweets, but like things I keep hearing in class. And so I was sort of like trying to say, well, it's this, too, or that you can say both. Athanasius says both at the same time. Uh, yeah. And you just dropped in uh, Hebrews 2. I think you just uh, said Hebrews 2. Did you say? I don't well, know if no, you added uh, another word. Hebrews yeah, so. yeah,
1: I think <laughs> Hebrews 2? Yeah. yeah, with a question mark. <laughs> Um, I mean, to be fair, I was like, I was in Memphis, I was playing some seriously nerdy board games, I happened to pick up my phone for five seconds while waiting on someone whose turn was taking too long. And that was like the first tweet that I saw. And I was like, I don't know, Brandon. So I only had a second, I thought, can go for it. Then I found out that that was against our friend rules. And I'm really sorry.
0: (laughs) Well, I, I, yeah, all I said was basically that I did not know you were that good at basketball because you just dunked all over me in front of everybody. And you were like, that wasn't a dunk. So apparently you didn't understand what dunking on Twitter was because you do it so often, right? The fact that I just confused two stories tells you everything you need to know. So, but we thought it would make a good conversation because it actually would be an interesting conversation to talk about uh, the relationship between in the incarnation between what does it mean for Christ to be truly human? What does it mean for us to be humans or fallen humanity? Um, so I thought that'd be fun to talk about. And then I guess that the heavenly offering thing does relate to the thing that you want to talk about, uh, about um, yeah. uh, David Moffat as well. So would you like to start with uh, you dunking on me and us talking about the incarnation? Or would you like to do the talk about Moffat and heavenly offering in Hebrews? Because those are both there.
1: Well, let's start with the book a little bit because that can be a good jumping off point to okay. talking about some of the ways that the, this conversation gets oversimplified and whatever. But I did want to say that um, I had already picked Moffat's book whenever the com- the first conversation happened about Hebrews 9. Mm-hmm. And so I'd already decided like this is going to be like the book that I want to read to, to Brandon um, because it's just so important that it also has these like one sentence kind of things that like shatter your you know previous conceptions and stuff, so super excited that it came up. But then I felt like, oh no, he's going to figure out what book I'm talking about um, no. or what well, book I'm bringing.
0: Yeah, and a little background too is is that on the last episode, I just started reading from Don Collette's book <laughs> to Madison with no warning whatsoever and said, "What do you think <laughs> about these sentences?" Which is totally unfair. But then we thought that actually would be fun to do. So it's now her turn to read me books out of context from a book that I've not read, uh, and yeah. to get my response. So. Uh, just fair warning: this is uh, basically uh, sheer ignorance at this point, uh, as this conversation goes along, at least on my part. So
1: I, I told Brandon that um, I didn't prepare sufficiently, but I was going to uh, just read him some German footnotes and uh, and pretend like I totally expected him to like be able to respond um, really cogently. So I didn't do that, but mostly just because I didn't prepare. Um, yeah, so, you have okay, to pronounce
0: so, it. It's German, so it's you can't German, just be yeah. dropping German, uh, you know, just willy nilly.
1: So. I, I guess people won't see us. So me holding up this book not helpful. doesn't yeah. matter. Okay. Nope. But so we're, what we're looking at is atonement and the logic of resurrection in the Epistle to the Hebrews by David and Moffat and the Brill, um, Novum Testamentum supplements or supplements to Novum Testamentum. And so, um, this book is—it's super important for Hebrew scholarship, but I think it's really important for New Testament scholarship generally, because it points toward, um, or it's a—it's a reaction to trends in New Testament scholarship that reduce the ascension, exaltation, the resurrection of Jesus, and make the cross um, this. Um, or it really, they center the cross—no um, pun intended—in a way that's unhelpful, and and that really, um, I think, does damage to our theology. But we can talk more about that. So here's some quotes, Brandon. I've I've set it up. maybe I've given the game away, but here we are. Okay. Okay. So here's one. I oh, hope this isn't too long. All right. I'll shorten it a little. In view of the widely held assumption that Jesus's death stands at the center of the soteriot. So <laughs> theology, Goodness. Here's just try um, just
0: tragedy.
1: Yeah, yeah I, can't say, I can't even say. I can't even say theological terms today. <laughs> Developed in Hebrews, this last statement is likely to be somewhat surprising. And that's sorry, I I skipped ahead and I skipped the antecedent for this. Um, uh, the writer does not identify Jesus's death as the moment of redemption and purification. That's pretty intense. Mm -hmm. And so here, is that surprising? Yeah, it's surprising. I think you've anticipated this, David Moffat. It is, however, no less surprising than the fact that the author of Hebrews himself consistently identifies the presentation of Jesus' offering in heaven as the event that affected atonement. Thoughts?
0: Mm. Read that last sentence again.
1: It is, however, no less surprising... Than the fact that the author of Hebrews himself consistently identifies the presentation of Jesus' offering in heaven as the event that effected atonement.
0: So so his argument is that the atonement is not truly and finally effective until his heavenly session, basically. So it's not at well, the cross, it's, it's not at the resurrection, not at the ascension or exaltation, or at least not completed until then. Is, is that right?
1: Until the heavenly offering. So the presentation of his blood in the heavenly tabernacle. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. So I think I'm on board with that completely out of context in two sentences in this major work, um, as you know, how this feels. Um, I mean, when I, so when I, I'll explain how I talk about it, at least generally, uh, like when I teach it, for example, and then you can tell me what you think. So I don't deal with heavenly offering a lot when I teach on it, um, probably because I've uh, grossly oversimplified in the way that Moffat says, but I do try to go out of my way to explain the connection between the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the heavenly session. Because what I tend to find with probably most evangelicals, I found this in the church, find this in the classroom, that the cross is so centrally focused that students uh, will often, or lay people will oftentimes completely miss all the rest of it. Uh, not to mention the fact that christ doesn't send the spirit he says himself until all this happens so um, my initial thought is yes although i i guess i don't want to i guess i don't want to separate them into individual events per se uh, other than to say that you you can't have any without the other right um but where the heavenly offering i mean this is i'm trying to think where this idea appears aside from hebrews Because, I mean, is it in some sense similar to the way that Paul talks about exaltation? He talks about his his session, um, when Scripture talks about him uh, interceding for us. You know, Paul says he lives to intercede for us, these kind of things. So I guess my question back to you, as the Hebrew scholar, would be, uh, I guess, in what ways would this particular—besides the fact that it's biblical, which is the most important part—but at what point does this sort of uh, particular heavenly offering— how does that fit into that larger kind of framework of cross, resurrection, ascension, et cetera?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great point. So I think something that we may want to nuance and that, you know, that I will um, like juke and chalk up to mystery to a degree is whether we can like actually map this all together and right. whether, I mean, um, there is some discussion in Moffitt's work as to whether this is, um, a metaphorical image of the, the work of Christ, but you know, that he's not actually like walking up to the heavenly altar. Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm completely open to that. It seems like a pretty dominant, um, perspective in early Jewish literature. We certainly see it in revelation Hebrews. I'm sure you could jump in here on Revelation. Um, but what happens in Hebrews is that we, of course, have the the death of Christ, which in Hebrews itself is only mentioned explicitly two or three times. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's all this discussion, especially among lay people, about how, you know, Hebrews is only about Christology. I'm, of course, trying so hard to uh, work against that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, Uh, You know, all things are Christology, and maybe here we're coming to inseparable operations to a degree, Um, but the other two um, divine persons are super important in Hebrews also, Mm -hmm. but uh, that's a side note. So the thing is that the cross is essential. But then the resurrection for Hebrews is what enables Jesus to be a priest in the heavenly tabernacle. It actually says that a couple of times, that it's him um, being perfected, which yeah. Moffat and others have argued is his obtainment um, of the, the um, heavenly or resurrection body that allows him to be qualified for the, or to be in the likeness of Melchizedek or to be in the order of Melchizedek or whatever, however you want to translate that. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer the prior so he ascends and enters into the heavenly tabernacle, makes his offering, and then he sits down. And that's of course a crucial point in Hebrews as well. It's not that it's not necessarily that his heavenly work ceases, because we have that he always lives to intercede for us, and that's similar to what we see elsewhere, like in Paul. Um, but he does sit down, and that is a symbol of his offering mm-hmm. um, or that the act or action of his offering um, being complete, but not necessarily completed. Mm -hmm. So I'll stop for a second. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So some of the, some of the metaphysical questions that are interesting to me in this discussion, you know, one of the things that I, I will sometimes uh, go off on a side rant about when I talk about this is the idea that there is a human body in the heavenly realm right now. Right. And so (laughs) there is a sense in which there is a physical man standing in heaven right now. So What does that mean? We don't know entirely, but I feel like that's where this conversation can at least be somewhat helpful is to think Mm -hmm. um, this is a human priest forever who has come. And so the metaphysical question is though that in the sort of spiritual realm, is there an actual throne per se, or is this an an analogy for the rule and reign of God? Is there an actual tabernacle for Jesus to go to, right? That's the critique. Uh, Of course, the answer is who knows? right? Yeah. So uh, what is it? I mean, even when we say he sits down at the right hand of the Father, that's that's well attested in several places. Stephen sees him at the right hand of the Father in Acts. So we know that he's at the right hand of the Father sitting at some level. Again, is that analogous? But he has a literal body. So yeah. in some sense, he is either standing, kneeling, sitting, laying, you know, uh, assumedly, I guess, maybe floating. I don't know if he doesn't have anything to lay on. But I think that's where people, I, I, I say all that to say, I think that's where people sort of get um they they just take it too far and they want to try to explain all of it and so i think even the caveat for me at least the caveat of we don't know what that actually looks like physically or metaphysically mm-hmm. but there is a sense in which this is part of his priestly work and yeah. scripture is very clear that he's a priest well his priestly work is not merely although it is i think but not merely the crucifixion the idea of the veil is torn this kind of idea. I think that's a beautiful picture of the fact that he is both the priest and the sacrifice, right? That he basically uh, is the one in the Holy of Holies uh, who is uh, making the sacrifice and also is the sacrifice, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And in some sense, inseparable operations, you could say he also is accepting his own sacrifice or something like that, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. So what that looks like physically, who knows exactly. But I think that is helpful, just, just how you're laying that out. I think where I'd want to not go too far, and you can tell me if Moffat does this, again, this is, this is me speaking ignorantly out of context. Um, I think we want to be able to say, uh, if we're going to affirm uh, any version of substitutionary atonement, for example, we want to be able to say that the cross and the shedding of blood is such a crucial central part to the idea of substitution. So I guess if we want to say, if Moffat is saying something like, well, atonement doesn't really happen or reach its final conclusion until the heavenly offering or something. I think I'd be fine with that. I think, but there's also a sense in which it, it, each, each act post crucifixion. Cause I think uh, I'm, I'm guessing Moffat would say something like this. I know others have, which the idea is that the crucifixion is the, um, the starting point or the sort mm-hmm. of uh, initiation of the atonement work. So I think that's right. Um, I guess the question would be at what level do we start flattening out the individual, uh, you know, the the resurrection has its own sort of giving us new life, defeating death has its own place, right? Yeah. It's not mere atonement, but it's also something else. The exaltation uh, has to do with humanity, has to do with kingly activity, stuff like that. So I guess that's where I'd say like, you know, how do you think through that in terms of at what level do we want to say this is all one event, which I'm happy to do? Uh, but also, I don't want to say, well, atonement doesn't really happen until way over here. So I don't know, you know, just, just thinking yeah. through that sort of the, the natural progression, but also the the work in its totality. How, how do you think yeah. through some of that uh, in terms of Hebrews and what Moffat says?
1: Yeah, that's really helpful. And I, I think, you know, I'd, I would love to chat through this because I am coming at it from the perspective of a biblical scholar in hoping to give each writer Um, his own kind of distinctive um, emphasis on or with atonement. Um, But I want to make sure that I'm doing that in a way that's theologically responsible, of course. And so my understanding would be that, I mean, Hebrews does seem to imply that Jesus is not qualified to serve as priest until he has a a resurrection body. It doesn't, so the blood he's taking into the heavenly tabernacle is still the blood that he shed on the cross. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that is a starting point. And I think that there is something where it's, I mean, some say he's a proleptic priest. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I think of it almost as like an inherited um, or something that he is going to be, but he's, so it's like, he's, um, he, he actually um, is inaugurated or like brought into the role, but he's preparing for it ahead of time, that kind of thing. Um, but that's, I mean, that's not necessarily in the text. It's just trying to make sense of how this fits with the other pictures that we see. Um, so, I mean, I think elsewhere though, like in, in John, I mean, in John's gospel, we clearly see that Jesus is portrayed as the Paschal lamb that obviously has atoning significance. And I think it is the cross that's where, uh, John imagines that taking place, so for Hebrews, that shifted a little bit, and it's more about the offering of the blood. And I, I think that that pushes us towards seeing all of the events as a kind of comprehensive work of atonement, um, but it also suggests that we need I don't know we need to take each of them seriously we need yeah. to take seriously the whole but yeah I don't I don't think we should collapse them but maybe that's me being biblical scholarly and you yeah. want to push on it
0: well that is you being a uh yeah being a myopic biblical scholar which is the problem with, <laughs> oh,
1: with my you people. Goodness.
0: but no I mean there is a sense you, you do have to like what Moffat seems to be doing you can t- correct me if I'm wrong what he seems to be doing is saying what does Hebrews say about mm-hmm. resurrection and atonement so mm-hmm. So a critique of, well, what about Paul is not what Moffat's trying to do, first of all, right? Yeah. Also, there is the sense in which these all contribute uh, uniquely to the whole. So as long as we acknowledge that there is, that we do have to look at this in light of the gospel accounts, in light of Paul, in light of James or John or whoever, uh, whoever else, I think yeah. that's where it can get, that's where when you do the sort of what does Hebrews say, as a scholar, sometimes we're not careful we will say this is what it is, and it's like no, this is what Hebrews, this is the right. symphony that Hebrews is singing. This is not yeah. all that it is. So I think that's where my where my maybe concern would come in. But that's not a critique of Moffat's work because yeah. he's not trying to do that. Exactly. The Question is for me is okay. Let's now now when we start to step back and talk about you know the theology of atonement or the theology of the work of Christ. Um, you know I, I think about uh, this is not going to surprise you, but I think about a church father uh, in this discussion. Uh, athanasius when he talks about the incarnation he barely talks about the birth at all sometimes when we think about incarnation we think of just the virgin birth and he views the incarnation as the entire humanly work of christ right so there is a sense in which i like thinking that way as a theologian even and so that's where i that's where i get my my theology goggles on and say okay uh what is hebrews contributing here and then how does that fit you know so i think that's where that's why I'm even asking that question of uh, when we talk about atonement per se, that might be a little bit different than saying what does the author of Hebrews trying to say about atonement? So
1: yeah, I think I think we're on the same page, and I think Athanasius is a is a good example because he loves John and he loves Hebrews, so he does, yeah. I think his theology is distinctly shaped, and so and John doesn't do a lot with the birth narrative either or anything really.
0: Yeah, right. So. Well, in John Barr, uh, his his new book on, mm-hmm. um, uh, he's talking about this exact thing. This is basically not even the focus uh, of of the the letter at all. So, or the gospel at all. Um, yeah, I like how you said Athanasius because uh, I am I am so hardcore about Augustine and Irenaeus, but then oh, yeah. I don't say Athanasius the way all of the snobs say you're supposed to. Even though I'm so hardcore about the other two, so. I need to get. I say
1: there. Irenaeus, actually.
0: Yeah. So you see, so we're, we'll just trade off on that because Irenaeus is, is correct. So, what? Okay. Sorry. I, I, I g- just don't make, say them I don't all make the rules. Britishly. I just, yeah. I don't make the rules. I just, I just report them. Now, Irenaeus is how British people say it, too.
1: No, say Irenaeus.
0: Really? Well, John Bears from England, and he says Irenaeus. There's one. Stephen Presley didn't say okay. okay. St. Andrews, and he says Irenaeus. So,
1: okay.
0: Okay. Anyway. Now that's a good that's a good conversation. Do you have any other quotes uh, from Moffat that you like that you want to uh, throw out there?
1: I mean, I have a couple, but they would be some of the things that we've already talked about. They would kind of contribute to that. Okay. So, um, you know, the high the writer's high priestly Christology depends upon Jesus's re- resurrection. It is only because Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, appeared before God, and presented himself alive to God that Jesus's death can be seen retrospectively to be part of the sacrificial process. So that may be, I don't know if you feel comfortable with that part. Um, His death was the necessary event that set into motion the sequence that resulted in the offering that affected the full atonement he obtained.
0: So, yeah, so basically, and I say this when it comes to the resurrection, right? If Jesus died and stayed dead, it wouldn't do us any good. Yeah. But what Moffat wants to say is not just that he died and stayed dead, not just that he rose, not just that he ascended or was exalted, if you want to put those together or separate them. Uh, and not, but also that he gave this heavenly offering and that Hebrews contributes that in a way that we can't ignore that, that piece of it. Yeah. That'd be fair.
1: Yeah. The one further thing I'd add is, um, you were talking about him uh, being raised bodily, Mm -hmm. which is of course, super important and Pauline. Um, but that's something that, uh, Moffat's gotten a lot of pushback about is, Mm -hmm. you know, him entering bodily and offering blood, like actual Mm -hmm. blood. So that's a secondary thing that um, his book has contributed is a reminder about the importance of Jesus' humanity in Hebrews, because um, again, the you know a lot of studies are like, look at the exaltation of Jesus, hooray, a so-called high Christology, woohoo! Mm-hmm. But then you realize, my goodness, and this may also help us transition to this discussion about how important Hebrews two is. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus is clearly like a richly. Um, inhabiting the human experience. And so mm-hmm. they're both there. Um yeah, anyways.
0: No, that's good. Yeah. Well, let's transition to the other one because that is a that is a good transition. So the other side of it is um and this is one of my favorite discussions. So I'm happy I'm happy to do this for 3 hours if you want to. <laughs> like I love talking about it in class. I love talking about it with colleagues. I love writing about it, and reading about it is what does it mean for the son of god to put on flesh, right? What well, what does that actually mean? Uh, In what ways is he human like us? In which ways is he not human like us? And what does that mean? So uh, this is the other place where you dunked on me. And uh, you were right. You were right to say that I was oversimplified. Um, I said, uh, you know, yeah, he he didn't put on flesh to become like us, but rather he put on flesh so that we might become like him. And that is an oversimplification. But what I was trying to sort of get across is a lot of times we f- we we sort of uh, freight all of our humanity onto Jesus, such that Jesus has to be exactly like us in every way in order to be truly human. Yeah. So, for example, he has to have struggled with every temptation I've ever struggled with, or he has to have the same internal wrestling with sin that you and I do in order for his temptations to be real or whatever. Yeah. Now Obviously, Hebrews gets into a lot of this, so it's great to talk to a Hebrews scholar about this. Yeah. But um, you know, one of the things that I that I try to get across when I say that. Um, is that ultimately what he is doing is patterning true humanity. He's not just a better moralist than us. He's not just uh, you know wrestling with sin like me, but a little bit better. But then right. I actually know because he is God, he is impeccable. He is incapable of sin. And so that's why he has to put on flesh because literally no other human is is can do that. That's the point, right? That's why every other covenant has failed and every other person who's been a part of every covenant has failed, right? It, from human perspective. So that's where I want to get in and say, yes, he becomes like us, of course, in the sense that he puts on real flesh. He lives uh, in the real world and, you know, is inhabiting a real human body and a real fallen world and all that kind of stuff, of course. But I think where the conversation goes from there is we start thinking, well, pimple-faced 14-year-old Jesus struggled with lust like pimple-faced 14-year-old teenager in America does. And that's where I want to start getting into that conversation of, okay, what what does that mean for him to be human when it comes to some of those kind of things? Yeah. So that, that's where, that's where I'm kind of coming from. So I'll kind of tell you, you can just respond to sort of my, um, so John Owen has this really good, um, it's not often you're going to hear me, uh, quote a reformer, Puritan or post reformer. So, so take, take them when, the, when you can guys, but, uh, John Owen has a really helpful distinction where he talks about the difference between internal and external temptation. And so he says with Christ, it's not that he is always internally at war with himself as though he may sin at any moment but rather because he has put on flesh and lives in a fallen world, external temptation comes to him. The difference between you and I, between us and Jesus, is that you and I are literally trying to make a decision between whether or not we're going to sin, whereas Jesus is not necessarily, at least in the sense that it's possible for him to have fallen. And so, you know, for example, uh, one of the examples I use with students that always like cracks them up and shocks them at the same time, is I say, somebody could walk in this room right now and say, Dr. Smith, I want you to go home right now and hit your wife in the head with a hammer. And I'm just like, there's no world in which I am. That's not, I'm not remotely tempted to go hit my wife and head with him ever. Like, that's just, you know, never would I, do, would I do something like that. That is a temptation, but I'm not wrestling with the temptation, right? And so I talk about Matthew 4 and Jesus and his interaction with Satan. Jesus does not seem to be whatsoever wrestling with whether or not he's going to give in to Satan's temptation. And I say that's actually the point, because what it means to be true human uh, is what it means for us to be in the new creation, right? And in the new creation, there is no more sin. There is no more tears. There, We're not going to sin anymore. We're not going to sin, right? And, yeah. and the difference between us in the future and Adam and Eve is that uh, because we are tied to Jesus's perfect obedience, and we're tied to Jesus's perfect righteousness, the only way we could fall is if he falls, and he never will. That's the difference. That's why he's the better Adam, the second Adam. So that's where I get into that and say, he didn't become like us in every possible respect when it comes to uh, he is like us fallen humans. Now, actually, he is the true humanity by whom, uh, by which we are are sort of patterning after. So we're trying to be like him and his humanity, not him trying to be like us. So there's my little mini rant. You tell me what you think.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there are three places in Hebrews where this is addressed, yep. I, I think, like more uh, robustly. So, of course, Hebrews 2 would be one where um, he, you know, shares blood and flesh um, so that um, He can be made like us in every way mm-hmm. so that um, he can make atonement and be merciful and faithful high priest. So, we may be getting that out of order a little bit. Um, So, fully human in every way. So, you, it sounds like you may be nuancing that. Yep. And, you know, in Hebrews 2, maybe that's super fair. The Hebrews 4 is the. That's
0: where everybody um, goes.
1: We do not have a high priest. What?
0: I said that's where everybody goes. to the Hebrew 4 we, when I say that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I'm going to add one more. Did you hear I had three places? You did. Yeah. I don't know if you know where I'm going next. I've never so, read the book of Hebrews. Um, so we knows? do not have a high priest who's unable to emphasize <laughs> with our weaknesses, but one who has been uh, here in NIV is test, tempted. I prefer tested in every way as we are, but did not sin. Mm-hmm. And so that would those would be the two. And uh, yeah, the question is what does it mean that he's tested in every way? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean temp, you know again, I, it is a theological point that I refuse to use tempted because I think in our understanding, the way that we use the word tempted in at least in English, the connotation is that one is tempted when they are lured. Like, oh, I'm tempted to eat this chocolate cake that I really shouldn't eat or whatever, Mm -hmm. or something much more dubious. So Jesus is tested in every way. And so for me, I think that this points toward something like what we're going to see in Hebrews 5, for example, and there are other places (laughs) in Hebrews where, um, you know, first it's that Jesus, like all the other Priest or high priest is taken from humanity and able to deal gently because he is beset with weakness. Mm-hmm. A lot of students, my students and colleagues for that matter, but mostly my students, um, they think that this is about the Levitical priest, but it's not. It's every high priest. And so it doesn't, you know, him being beset with weakness is a, that's him being human. Um, and it says the the issue that they take, and this is a side note, is that it says that the priest has to make sacrifices for his own sins. Yeah. But I would say that that's the, theoretically, if a if a priest sins, he has to offer sacrifices for it. Jesus does not. Yeah. Nevertheless. Then, in Hebrews 5-7, this is where He's offering up prayers and fervent cries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And mm-hmm. so, this is, I mean, people think this is a portrait of Gethsemane, I don't think that's likely. I think it's more likely, as you say, a picture of the Incarnation, during which Jesus is consistently tempted, He experiences weakness, um, He has difficulty, um, and He consistently cries out to the Father. And and so they they stay united um, in that way as well. Mm. So, I mean, yeah. The I wrote I, I did write an essay on testing in Hebrews, and um, and in it I say we have no idea if this means that in the specific test that I'm gonna have in, you know, 20 minutes when I try to convince toddlers to do you know anything that I want them <laughs> to do. Um, If that, you know, if Jesus experienced something like that, he certainly didn't experience physically being a mother, but Mm -hmm. I think he can identify with mothers and fathers and Mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, But, you know, uh, physical illness, hunger, weakness, exhaustion, you know, those are general kinds of sins. Mm -hmm. And so I think it breaks down a little bit. Like, I think there is an extent to which in each of my moments, that Jesus is able to empathize with the particular struggle that I experienced there but I don't know how so that's where Hebrews is not clear and yeah. so that, I think that's why I would want to press because I think there is an extent to which Jesus understands every kind of temptation or every experience of or, or testing um, or every experience of testing but yeah maybe not all in the same way so I don't know I'm Maybe that doesn't make any sense, but hopefully it was a little bit coherent.
0: Yeah, no, I think, well, I think the testing and temptation is a good distinction. uh, Because actually, I think in that sense, it, it, I don't know if it gives it a new category, I guess it does in some sense, but it even just steps back a little bit and says that it's more than just whether or not Satan was trying to get him to sin. There are other ways to be tested in your, in your humanity. And there are other testing, testings that you feel that you will feel just, by the fact that you have put on a fall, uh, you know, a human flesh and live in a fallen world. Right. So I think that's where I, I think where I, where, um, where I want to make a distinction, particularly, um, I agree with you tempted as we are tested as we are in every way. So such that he can be sympathetic toward us, but that doesn't entail that he has to have been tempted in every unique way. Every person has, um, or yeah. even more generally, because you and I don't have to have the same experience for me to be uh, sympathetic or even empathetic toward, um, you know, uh, you losing somebody you love. Well, if we both lost somebody we love, even if it's somebody who's closer or further from us, there's a sense in which I can sympathize with you, even if I don't feel the same pain or whatever. Right. So there, there are some kind of general ways you can talk about that. I think that could be related there. I think where I want to, where I just keep feeling like impeccability is such a helpful, uh, doctrine that I think we need to hold on to is that this is, uh, this is still one person who is both God and man, right? So if we're not careful, we just, we emphasize all the humanity and forget that this is God who has put on flesh. So in fact, the fathers will oftentimes, uh, in in some sense, privilege the divinity actually, and say, he is the one who has put on flesh. So he, he is maybe not primarily God because they want to obviously hold the hypostatic union, but there's a sense in which that, that it is the person of the son who has put on Mm -hmm. flesh, right? So you have these two natures in one person. So I think that's where I still, I'm like, okay, but I don't want to go so humanity heavy that i've now lost the fact that this is the perfect sinless divine son who has done this and so i think that's where impeccability is helpful and where i want to say i think we can make some distinction between his uh his will or his um sort of internal relations again we don't know everything we don't know what he was thinking at all times but i can imagine that there's a, a clear distinction between a man who is uh not fallen Not sinful and is God, obviously, uh, and who is coming to be the true humanity, that there have to be some very clear distinctions between us and him. Because, uh, and I think that's where I want to say I have a hard time with the idea that Jesus is just always internally wrestling with falling into sin. Uh, You know, you can struggle with weakness, uh, frustration, tired, um, even in some sense, maybe wrestle with temptation to sin in some sense. I mean, Hebrews 5a, right after what you were quoting, does say that he was the son who learned obedience, right? So there's a sense in which he didn't just come out of the womb uh, obedient per se. But if we take that too far, then we say, well, was there a 30-year gap in which Jesus could have fallen? But fortunately, he became a good enough moralist that he figured it out before he died. You know, that's where I think we got to be careful not to, again, take those things and lump all of that onto who Jesus is, because he is also still God, right? So
1: yeah. I think where I would want to balance that, though, I mean, you know, I mentioned that I don't think that this passage is about Gethsemane, but I think we should consider Gethsemane. Sure. I mean, Jesus does ask the Father to relieve him, to take this cup from him. Yep. And, uh, I mean, that sounds like him considering uh, that he's test- he's being tested to a point that he can't handle. Mm-hmm. And and I, I just think that toes the line a little bit, that... Yeah that there, there is, there is a difficulty there. And that, so I wouldn't want to emphasize the humanity to the, ex, or that, sorry, the divinity, to the extent that, that he isn't facing some internal struggle. I think yeah, you're right. right. I mean, I think he's like walking down the street in Galilee and he's like, Oh, th- you know, that lady's ankles are really nice. Like, <laughs> um, that, I mean, I I don't think that's the case at all. Um, yeah. not that that's how, sexual temptation works anyway, but nevertheless,
0: maybe in the first century, um, who knows. <laughs> that's another um, can of worms. We're not opening on this uh, episode. I of know, Grammar. You
1: told me, uh, nah, but, okay. um, but yeah, but I think that there is difficulty. I mean, and I think we see that represented in a number of places yeah, and it could yeah. be that, you know, something like that where, I mean, Jesus at times is tem tested or tempted, even tempted to consider whether, you know, God, he might work in a different way yeah. to alleviate the suffering of those around him mm-hmm. and so obviously he yields to the will of the father and you know take he takes the steps that that have been outlined um, for him and by him yeah. um but I, I don't know i think there's a tension there that, that we had to take seriously i don't know if this makes sense maybe this is no it's,
0: no it does i mean Gethsemane is the you know it's it's one of those things where there's always the passage that that toes the line the closest, and we t- tend to find that one. So, like with that one, it's Gethsemane. With uh, Jesus's omniscience, it's him saying he doesn't know the future. You know, it's those there's those ones that there's some that just seem so clear, and then there's always the couple that you're like, like Hebrews four to me personally, just doesn't it doesn't mess with me. Like for some people, they're just so caught up in Hebrews four, tempted as we are, yet without sin, and I'm just like that doesn't have to entail all the things that you're thinking, right? It's not necessary yeah. and also it can cause theological problems if you're not careful it's yeah. so many is interesting because there is that sense there is the sense in hebrews where it says that he uh with joy went to and endured oh. the cross sometimes i'll tell students that this is a clear example that's in hebrews of joy, two, by the way champ you what
1: that's in hebrews 2.
0: yeah i know yeah i'm with you i feel you um, <laughs> or hebrews but, also uh, hebrews also, also yeah not chapter two yeah so in but in hebrews you have that right so there is the sense in which, uh, and I'll make the distinction with students, for example, joy and happiness are obviously not the same thing. Well, here's an example, right? Christ can be feeling the weight of that decision. He can feel the emotions, if you want to say that, whatever, of what is going to happen yeah. while still going to it with joy. But I think where, I think maybe you and I are just on, it's just points of emphasis at this point, not actual disagreement. I think um, you're right. Because I think I want to come back around to what you said and say, yes, but um, he, he immediately says not my will but your will. Oh like, totally. Whereas you and I might say that like 2 weeks from now, but not uh, not in the moment, you know. Um and so yeah. there's a sense in which he is feeling the full weight of what is going to happen. He's going to be he's going to be crucified, right? I mean that's uh if he is if he is actually human, he should be feeling the the, the, the he's going to feel the pain, the suffering. He knows that's happening. Oh yeah. But again, yeah. that doesn't have to go to the extent of um therefore he is um like, I think I would push back on he is potentially asking for another way, you know, or trying to get another way. Um, yeah. But rather, he just is feeling the weight of that. And I guess if the father said, okay, fine, let's do it a different way. Great. But I, I, it seems that he would be aware that there's not another way. Right. So that's the tension. I think right? probably. Is, yeah. So that's the tension, right, is he's feeling the full weight of it to the extent that he feels that crying out of yeah. if there's another way. But there's such a clear, we're still unified in this. That that's where I still want to say, like, like how much more human he is than you and I, or truly human than you and yeah. I. That his obedience and worship is so perfect that this is a, an instantaneous response, whereas you and I may respond yeah. more uh, delayed, for lack of a better word. Yeah,
1: so. I mean, I think it's bargaining that we all do, and you know, I, I again, I don't, I don't want to overemphasize a kind of human analogy or anything like that. But I mean, I, I'm sure if you or I was in a situation where. One of our children, you know, God forbid, was in a bad situation that we would we might bargain and yeah. say, God, like not not her or not. Yeah, well we all we have all daughters, I guess. So not her, but yeah. me. And it doesn't mean that we actually think God would work in that way. Um, yeah. but it's sure something that we want to give a shot. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, I think we do have to we have to reckon with that. That's that's the but that's where I think the you know, Calcedon. So obvious, so helpful. The the one person that you right. do have to you know when when the book when uh, the book of Acts says you killed the God of life. Well, how is it that God can die? Well, we got to start having conversations about the fact that this is God in the flesh. That this is one person, right? So we have to always recognize that, acknowledge that, not become an historian and say two persons basically detached from each other or go the other way and just sort of collapse them into the personhood. And so we're always, I mean, I, I think the incarnation and the hypostatic union is always a little bit of theological bargaining, even that you're always like, you, you're always going to exaggerate maybe toward the natures a little bit more, or maybe toward the person or maybe toward this particular nature and this particular text. And that's just part of it. You know, I had a student come up to me after class. Uh, she's one of our Bible majors and really, really sharp. And she came up to me after class the other day and she said, I feel like every time I want to say uh, two natures, I feel like I'm like, no, 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 one person. And then every time I want to say one person, I'm like, no, 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 no two natures. And I was like, no, that's great. That's where you should be actually. Like you should be yeah. bouncing off those two guardrails. You know, that's, that's what keeps you yeah. uh, orthodox. So you, and I think that's what you and I are doing at some level, right? Is we're kind of pinging off those two guardrails of like, but he is really human. So, but also he's really God. So, you know, and I think that's just, yeah. just part of it. So.
1: Yeah. That's it. I, I Um, I mean, that's why we have uh, redoublement or redoublement or however in the world you say it, but
0: redoublement, redoublement, yeah,
1: Um, me too, yeah. Where are from? But yeah, that's why I tell my students. I may have said this on the podcast before, but I tell them you cannot take like when we get into my John class, I say the number one rule in this class is do not take verses of John out of context mm-hmm. because you can develop all sorts of theological heresies by pull like cherry picking something out yeah. of John. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, that balance is so important. I mean, that's, that's true of all biblical texts, of course, yeah. but it's really true in John.
0: Yeah. So. Her- heretics are made one passage out of context at a time. It's not about that. And John was obviously, I mean, it's just so easy and Hebrews apparently too. So judging by how often you dunk on me on Twitter, it's, well, have you read Hebrews 2? Have you read Hebrews 4? Have you read Hebrews 7? Have you read Hebrews 12? Well, that's also in Hebrews 2. So.
1: I'm just making sure that you and the rest of the world give Hebrews its due. <laughs> because it's very important. And these fathers you love so much, they sure were affected by the theology of Hebrews. They were. So Especially back when Paul wrote sure. it. So, yeah. Oh, my goodness
0: see the problem is that you you picked the book that we don't know the author for so i mean can we even really know anything you know like if i can't tie this to paul's whole corpus (laughs) i'm not sure that i can actually think about how hebrews contributes to biblical theology so
1: oh my goodness
0: (laughs) you have nothing for that huh you're just just head shaking
1: i mean i do have some stuff I I, i grant it's pauline the author pro- like knows timothy obviously blah 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 yeah
0: see that, that i'm not gonna we never i never let you get away with leaving this conversation without addressing authorship so
1: it's making me I'm glad we were it. able to do
0: that so all right final question for you i know you've got um you're on the clock from kids waking up oh, unless yeah. that's already happened um
1: yeah the small person uh related to me is currently singing
0: so it's, I see uh, people looking over. So I figured there was the a time monitor. is drawing
1: nigh. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. at the baby monitor.
0: Okay, final question for you then. Um, who are you picking in your bracket for uh, March Madness? Because this is going to come Baylor. out. This is going to come back out after, uh, probably after the tournament's over. So okay,
1: yeah, it's been pretty. So the whole forward family is uh, it's doing this right now, and it's been really funny because James Arcati actually only picked theological schools. So he's, doing point, all right, then. He, he's predicted a couple of pretty yeah. big upsets.
0: At the time of this upsets. recording, Oral Roberts and Abilene Christian have both already had upsets yeah. as small Christian schools. So
1: yeah, much to my chagrin. So I, um, I had Texas originally cause I'm, we're Longhorn fans. So mm-hmm. Curtis, had, my husband has Texas going all the way. I had them going to the championship, but then had Baylor or no, I had Texas winning, but then I was like, eh, maybe Baylor's a safer shot. Right mm. now that does seem to be the case. Yeah. So, um we'll we'll see how it turns out, but I had a line I going pretty far, you know, Illinois going pretty far. Yeah. Um didn't predict a couple of the upsets. I I did have the um well, I had one of the upsets though. Oh, UNT. I had I had UNT.
0: Oh, you did have UNT. In well, mind. if you go all Texas, you yeah, I mean there's there's a handful of those that are just going to happen. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, I what uh do you that, have? The problem with Curtis, um, poor guy, and I do this too, is he let his fandom take him too far. There's no way Texas was going to win at all, much I less. Know. I mean, they shouldn't have got upset by ACU, but.
1: Yeah, that was ridiculous.
0: Yeah, I didn't pay enough attention this year, so I went pretty chalk. Sometimes, like years where I feel like I've paid attention, I might try to be risky, but I pretty much just have uh, Gonzaga beating Baylor. So I, okay. I went, I went yeah. super chalk uh, on this one. So,
1: yeah, I think that's statistically the, the most common outcome. Yeah. So I kind of, when I do it, like I, I don't, I don't follow uh college basketball too much. I mean, I, I'm loosely informed about who's been good historically and whatever, Yeah. but, um, so I kind of go like my gut who I like, like I had a really difficult time picking Arkansas, but I at least had them like winning one or two games, <laughs> so they, like really like. It hurt me a little bit. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's yeah. a it's a science.
0: Yeah, my my fandom doesn't let me pick Texas to win, but my fandom keeps me from letting like Texas Tech uh, go very far, uh, you know, or A wow. and M or something like that. Like anytime that's a that's a, I think I think Texas Tech. Uh, I think I picked them to win their first game, and then I picked them to lose after that. So um, I think, and they did right. Arkansas beat them, so uh, that yeah. worked out for me. So.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: And I'm uh, I'm too, a little bit too young for Arkansas to be a rival for Texas because the Southwest Conference is basically gone at that point. So,
1: well, so I'm younger than you are. First of all, want to make that. sure that we get yeah. we work that in wherever we. Oh, can. by the way,
0: let's can we also work in that I'm now doctor since last time we recorded, <laughs> literally officially doctor. So you are Madison the younger, and I'm Doctor Smith. I'm very happy about this. But go ahead. Okay.
1: Or Brian, or sorry, Brian, Brandon, the oldest.
0: Um, well, we're not friends. Tonight, so you got my name wrong. So that's great. That's good.
1: I'm so sorry. What, uh, what, were, you, were, you, what were you saying? Uh, oh, I mean, I grew up in Texarkana on yeah. Arkansas's doorstep. So everybody I knew was either yeah, a, an Aggie or a Razorback. And so yeah. it was really, it was a really hard time.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm up here in, uh, I'm up here in Cedarville, which is about an hour from Columbus. And so, Ohio State oh, yeah. fans were already annoying enough and now I'm in the yes. middle of them. It's it's bad. I'm so so sorry. I was I was happy to see them lose. That was a great that was a great beginning. So
1: Yes. Yeah, except for my bracket. RIP yeah. my bracket for sure. No,
0: that's all right. At the end of the day, who cares? We're not taking our brackets with us to heaven, you know? I mean, you know can't, we don't take this stuff with us. So <laughs> So Jesus' heavenly offering of his blood is not I feel uh, I
1: feel like really this. respected that you brought up a sport thing and like and knew that I would be able to handle it. I got uh, you, you, Madison. Like that's I'm here really to I'm here to seen.
0: I'm here to lift you up personally whereas you are on Twitter to tear me down publicly. Yeah, you know, I'm here to build you I, up publicly.
1: I supported you the other day. It's not all this or that. It's it was not, it, the support was in my friendship too. I got to keep yeah. you honest. I got to make sure that you, you know, you're being responsible in your theology. That's mm. what I'm here for.
0: Well, that's what that's what people expect you to do. And that's why people like when you're on the podcast, because I'm just such an arrogant jerk that they like when somebody is on here, <laughs> just to knock me down a peg. So I get regular comments about how Madison knocks me down a peg and that's the best part. About it, so. I'm, ha- I'm happy for that. It's fine. I keep inviting you on. So clearly I'm humble, you know, my humility only <laughs> ha- exceeds my humility. So
1: now I'm really worried. I didn't give you a hard enough time today. So, <laughs> you know, hit me up if uh, you want me to dunk on Brandon more in the next episode,
0: or <laughs> I don't know that you need that much permission. So, all right, Madison, appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Brandon. Have a good one. Bye, y'all.